You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is April 6th, 2023. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I thought today that I might talk a little bit about loss. One of the things that I think is useful is to get really good at losing things. Uh, because the more frightened you are of losing things, the more you tend to cling, which sort of amplifies the, the suffering. I used to also say quite a bit, uh, in order to be authentic, you have to be willing to be abandoned. In order to be completely authentic, you have to be willing to be completely abandoned which is also this uh, uh, idea of loss. You have to be willing to lose, to be free, to be authentic. Equanimity uh, in the Brahma Viharas uh, is this fully engaged, lively, energetic, balanced experience of things. And the near enemy of that is detachment, where you don't engage, you're flat disinterested, it's unaffected by uh, what's actually happening. So that I wouldn't say that being good at losing things means that you detach in that sense, that you just don't engage anything. So it doesn't matter whether you lose it or not. One of the things that's certain and one of the things that we talk about in terms of impermanence is that everything is lost eventually. Um, and so if you disengage and don't attach, don't uh, explore things that are happening, it isn't that that prevents you from losing it. It really just prevents you from having it in the first place. You can go in, uh, investigate what's happening, engage in the process of it, experience it, uh, and at the same time knowing that it's going to be lost. That's this wider, bigger picture. In the smaller picture, of course, it's each moment, each sensing experience, every little element that comes to make the experience of these things also is arising and passing. There's nothing that isn't arising and passing. There's nothing that lasts, nothing that's permanent, nothing that you can hang on to, nothing that can provide a, a sense of security. And so how do you, in this uh, experience, this human experience where everything is so precarious all of the time, come into a place of balance where you can actually engage in uh, discovery, engage in exploration? I think that's one of the things that really this uh, practice is meant to tune you into. You get good at losing things, which actually frees you up to be fully engaged in things. There is no idea uh, in that process that you're not going to lose it. You are going to lose it. Uh, and so you move into the direction of engagement, fully in engaging things. In one direction, you might say there's this full engagement. In the other direction, you might say nihilism. But nihilism, <clears throat> in the traditional, in the uh, actual meaning of nihilism is uh, is that 
nothing has intrinsic meaning, which is not out of line with Buddhist thought. And it was uh, a response to enlightenment in the Christian sense that developed in the Renaissance, you know, the idea that everything is infused with the mind of God. Uh, and that some things then have these intrinsic meanings that are associated with them based on this. And then the nihilists uh, had the idea that actually there is no intrinsic meaning. And if you attach that uh, more in the direction of Buddhist thought, that the meaning that we create and assign to things is based on our conditioning. Nihilism has, of course, drifted in our culture of, what would you say, fastness, where nothing is really very deep into this idea that nothing has meaning. But nothing has meaning as a concept is very different than nothing has an intrinsic meaning, and that we assign meaning to everything that we have. So in some sense, the nihilism of nothing has meaning would have you uh, justify the disengagement from things, the detachment from things. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you do it or not because it, nothing matters. It's very different than uh, we make up the meaning that we assign to things. And because each of us is assigning different uh, meanings to the same thing, there is no single meaning to something. We know that we live in a body that will grow old. We know that we live in a body that's subject to sickness. And we know that we live in a body that will eventually die. And on the, that side of things where nothing actually matters, it can be paralyzing in terms of your willingness to explore what it's possible for you to find out about this human life. So I don't mind the nihilism of nothing has an intrinsic meaning to it and that we have to go discover the meaning for ourselves and that our sense of meaning is has value in it, different from the enlightenment concept that the this evaluation of the things that are holy and the things that are not holy. And I know for myself, I've never really resonated with the idea that there was a cosmic meaning to things that was fixed. I've never had the experience of that. And I have to say, I, I didn't really have much of the experience of sacredness uh, until I started to do the Six Lamps practice, which is a Tibetan bond practice. And in that, that opened up the experience of sacredness. But one of the things I know from practices that you tend to have the, the kind of insight that is related to the kind of practice that you do, that certain practices tend to create certain experiences, that if you engage in practices that uh, typically produce a sense of sacredness, it's, it's unremarkable that you would then begin to have experiences of sacredness doing those practices. That doesn't diminish the sense of sacredness that arises. And I was quite happy to have an experience of that. And then the view that comes from that uh, in, is really uh, enlivening, enriching of just 
most ordinary experiences that we can tend to easily tune out because they don't have a lot of interest. Have you noticed uh, in the one of the conditions of being in this human body is that it takes a lot of care, which can be quite repetitious. Uh, how many meals have you had? How many nights of sleep have you had? How many uh, times have you woken up out of that sleep? You know, we we have the we've made it into comedy. The 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 Groundhog Day, for instance. Every day is the same. And it's easy, of course, to get into that uh, if you have a, a fixed schedule. I tend to do very well with fixed schedules. I, I like to have them. I don't pay attention to it at all, really. Uh, at this point, I, I consider myself a slave to the calendar. I start the day by opening the calendar. And I just go do the things that are on it. It's really without much direction beyond that. Um, I do do have I have managed to set up a, a, a life that's very agreeable to the way that I've been conditioned. And I enjoy it and it's quite pleasant. But it is a uh, very repetitious in a sense. I do the same thing. I do the same thing most days of the week. Um, Attachment in the Buddhist sense means that you attach to the undifferentiated, unfixated sensing experience, and in attaching to it, ultimate reality folds out into conceptual reality, this thing that's solid, that appears to be solid. Natasha Panati is a term that I quite like, which is, in some sense, the, the experience of solidness. So, as an example of that, you look out at the room that you're in and you see a visual experience of it. And let's say you're sitting at a, a desk or a table, and then you just lay your hand onto the table and it feels solid. It creates an experience of it being real. Whereas if you just stayed in the visual experience, it, you, you might have a problem with that sense of uh, realness to it. Do you ever notice that you're just touching something, rubbing your fingers back and forth, touching a fabric, or looking for that additional physicalness to something? So that these sense experiences which come together and then we reify into something solid is this process. And if we don't have that component to it, that touching of it, that uh, reification of it, uh, it tends to, we tend to experience it as less real. Taja Panati also has this a sense of the back and forth, touching into the sensing experience, what we're taking in, and then the, the reification that we create. Can you hear Lucy bark when she does? I'm wondering how good the... Uh, the uh, sound cancelization, sound canceling is. Um, <clears throat> this is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. Uh, 
So in the Buddhist sense, we attach to the undifferentiated sensing experience and create conceptual reality, this experience of solidness around us, which comes and goes quite a bit. You turn your head in that part of the room that you can no longer see is no longer solid. You, uh, the, the view that's in front of you does appear solid. If you wonder about it, you can just touch it, and that touching makes it solid. In attachment theory, attachment means the nature of the experience of attaching to other people and the sense of safety or security that comes with that. One of the one of the early areas of research that John Bowlby engaged in was loss. So you have the attachment, you have separation and loss. Loss is usually what he meant by death. Um, losing through death. If the experience in early childhood is good, and we develop a sense of security, we're interested and able to connect to people and form alliances with them that can be quite stable and long-lasting. But everything is impermanent, so even there, there's the possibility of death. And then how do we reform those experiences? Process of grieving, sometimes in, in Buddhist um, conversations, the idea is that you should simply disconnect from it and move on from it. And I think that that goes well with the idea that we don't really connect anything. We don't really attach anything. That 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 sense of being always detached. Um, it it is highly associated with a dismissing or avoided detachment strategy, and I know uh, I often hear in my uh, work as a meditation teacher that people uh, that have this dismissing attachment strategy come into the practice looking for a way that they can make themselves okay without really being connected anywhere, without really attaching anywhere. I want to go uh, practice in a cave in complete isolation. or Find a way simply to be a monastic, separate, unconnected. Um, and this, uh, I think, is a way of not really seeing the nature of the human condition that we're in. The nature of the human condition is to be in complex social groups and to have a group around you. That's the way the physical structure of the brain is. We have these bundles of neurons which only appear in the brains of, of species that operate in complex social groups. We're really meant to be embedded in a social group. We also live in a body, and the way that we create attachments is by growing the connections in our brain, so in our nervous system. And if you have a relationship with somebody that lasts over a period of time, you've grown these structures in the brain which represent that person. 
one of the processes of creating reality. So you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact. Consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether we get to it? Uh, if it's a pleasant experience, do we have time to experience pleasantness in the moment? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's an entry in the perceptual database that's close enough to this undifferentiated, unfixated sensing experience, the meaning attaches to it in the Buddhist sense. It fixates and creates this uh, conceptual reality which is then projected out in which we operate in. Part of that process of converting it into conceptual reality is intention and action. We make an intention for an action, we take an action, and then part of that is collecting what happened in that, uh, what happened in response to the action that we we took in, in collecting that, part of the experience of that is who do we share that with? So that the piece about exploration is forming uh, a response to the conditions of the present moment, risking an action, collecting what happens from the action. And part of that collection is who do we share it with? And this has grown into the brain. So you'll notice that when you're out and about, you're doing something and something happens, and you respond to it, often there is the thought of who you might share that experience with. Oh, somebody would love this, or that's so interesting, that that's going to be something that uh, I can't wait to tell all of those thoughts arising in the mind. And then when we have loss, that whole process unfolds except that axion that's connected to the idea of the person that we would share it with comes up to an object that is lost, and then there's a pop of sadness that arises that lets us know that the message is not deliverable. And that pop of sadness, that energy of sadness, in a beneficial way is meant to push us into reconnecting that uh, experience that thread of memory in the perceptual database to someone else so that when those kinds of experiences arise and we collect the outcome and want to share it with somebody, it's somebody that's now available to us rather than the person who is lost. But when you know someone for a long time and there's lots of experiences like this and a lot of the, the process of the moment uh, by moment unfolding, then it isn't just a pop of sadness, it's a wave of sadness that comes from the loss of somebody. And then we tend to build these fantasy bridges that hold the number of losses uh, that we experience in stasis as we work through them. Imagine the cascade of loss if you lose the person that you would uh, talk to about losing things. You know, that feedback loop that tends to produce these uh, almost uh, 
disorganizing. Let's use the word disorganizing. All of these systems are set up and organized, and when you lose a vital piece to them, uh, it disorganizes the whole system, and then you're in this this crazy place of disorganization, and the the body mind attempts to reorganize, and the temporary solution is simply to uh, go into the if onlys. Really, if only this had happened. If only I had done this that wouldn't have happened if only if only if only you had died instead of the person that i wanted to die um, then i wouldn't be in this state of complete chaos and disorganization internally and uh, not have anyone to turn to to help me and then little by little you move these uh, these connections to other people you move these attachment needs to other people and when you've completely replaced all of the connections with someone else, so imagine a, an operator. Do you, um, when I was a kid and TV started, uh, they bought old movies from the studios, but the movies in the, in the late 50s and early 60s that they bought were from the 30s and 40s. And so often what you... Uh, saw depicted in front of you was a telephone exchange, which was a, 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 a some operators sitting in front of these panels, and all of these different wires that you would plug into different holes to connect to people. And I always had that vision of how we get relationally connected, and then just imagine somebody coming in and pulling them all out, that you're totally disconnected, and then you gradually have to push and find people to connect to and then reconnect those attachment needs so that when you go through that process of creating the experience of each moment and you take your actions and there's an outcome and you grab that outcome and you share it with somebody, it's actually reconnected to somebody who's there. And I do think that the faster you do that, the better, because the person is lost after all. And the faster you do it, the better you are at doing that, the faster the grieving process resolves. And then you don't think of the person who's lost anymore. I think sometimes there's this notion of to call it a piousness, a sense of observing, not forgetting person who's lost, but when you fully grieve, you don't think of them anymore, because the mind routes you not to the, the person who's been lost, but to someone else. So that process unfolds, the sensing experience, the creation of conceptual reality, the action you take, collecting what happens and then sharing it with someone else. You don't think of them. But it is possible not to do that. It is possible to continuously hold the experience of them. We call that a protracted grief process. Uh, in Western culture, I think a, a period of normal grieving is a year or so. That if it goes on too much longer than that, it's called protracted grieving. It's a problem that you don't move.
which is not to say you don't remember, of course, but you, you do remember when you intentionally think about it, but in the moment as it unfolds of that spontaneity of each moment unfolding into the next, you don't think of them much. And I think that's probably a better way to go because you're in the experience of the present moment and not caught up in thinking, caught up in the mental reservations. And in, I think in a, in a Buddhist sense, really, this is seeing things clearly the way that they are. If the person is lost, they're gone. You can't hold on to that. And with this expectation, what opens then is the possibility that, of course, you can be with them during that process. You don't have to avoid the experience of it. You can be in it, in that experience as it unfolds. To be with and to care for the person dying. Let them die. But if we back out a little bit from the attachment definition of loss being so strongly associated with death, and we also have relationships that come and go that are that we can often experience as loss. Robin Dunbar, the British relationship researcher that I quite am fascinated with his work in his new book, said that most people in the West uh, most adults in the West experience the loss of a, a significant relationship to them every two and a half years. Have you tracked your relationship history, what that's like? If you're out there in the world engaging people, forming relationships, getting to know them, uh, how frequently do you lose somebody? And how do you manage that? We can get really good at it, uh, and good at it means that you are willing to go in and form these connections uh, that really have you engaged and invested in the experience of it. And at the same time, when you lose it, recognize the loss and then begin to replace uh, the person that you've lost, not as a bundle of, a single bundle, but reassigning each of the little threads of attachment. Then the, the resistance to doing that doesn't build up. One of the things I notice in, in people who have trouble with this is uh, disappointment begins to gather. And it is actually the avoidance of the disappointment of things not working out that inhibits people from moving forward. This is particularly true in the attachment work that we do, that people that uh, are uh, disorganized don't do very well in forming stable, lasting relationships. Uh, and insecure people do less well. And when you over and over again have the experiences of relationships falling apart, and a particular pattern that, that you begin to recognize happening, but at the same time, you're powerless to prevent from happening. It creates this sense of disappointment. And when the reservoir of disappointment is large enough, it begins to inhibit our willingness to, to try again. So 
what you notice in a pattern of uh, with disorganized or insecurely attached people sometime in the mid 30s the, the 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 trial and error of trying to form connected meaningful relationships and the the failure the the routine failure of that causes them to begin to withdraw from attempting to form relationships christian george i have this notion i thought i had read this before that secure securely attached people can lose their can become insecurely attached through loss or trauma um do you do you think that well do you think that that's true and uh do you think that that's possibly mitigated by like high mentalizing or like what would be the difference between someone that would experience loss or trauma and not get kicked out of like their existing secure attachment as an adult um, and the person that is able to get through that? Is it just the amount of social ties and stuff that you have to kind of soften the blow? Um, secure people most often uh, commit with other secure people. So they form relationships together. And so the playing field is pretty even. Because dismissing people don't do uh, collaborative relationships, they don't often end up in relationships with dismissing people. But they do uh, often enough end up in relationships with preoccupied people. The preoccupied person wants proximity so that they show up uh, and that that works for the secure person. And if a secure person is successful in taking care of the preoccupied person well enough, the preoccupied uh, attachment system doesn't activate that much. Secure people don't have relationships so much with disorganized people because they're too unreliable and they, they don't do unreliable. So really in the, in the exposure I've had to this conversation, the danger for secure people is to engage in a relationship with a preoccupied person, particularly a preoccupied person that has a strong uh, predilection to use pretend mode. What happens to this, the, uh, the secure person when they finally figure out that the uh, preoccupied person is pretending, uh, it undermines their confidence in their own ability to tell whether somebody is telling them the truth or not. And then that undermines their security. If they have enough people around them that they, they can come back from that, they can retain it. But it, it can be so devastating in terms of how uh, misrepresented uh, the relationship was by the person in, in uh, pretend mode, that, that can really undermine the person's confidence in knowing what's actually happening. Now, on the other hand, the secure person can take care of the preoccupied person so well that the fearfulness that they experience uh, is repaired and they come into a place of more security. But you can go either way. That's one of the, the I think, wonderful uh, aspects of attachment conditioning is that you can recondition 
uh, pretty much all of the attachment strategies and move into a place of earned security. But one of the hardest uh, play, one of the hardest uh, formulations to change is the uh, angrily preoccupied person who uses pretend mode to navigate relationships, because when you when that all breaks apart, you you really have a sense of how little of it was actually real. And because they're pretending to be connected and they're pretending to be in the relationship, they disappear with just, you know, breathtaking speed because they were never actually really in it. And so that that can be profoundly painful to somebody who really uh, invested and connected, but not to something real, to the, the presentation of the person in pretend mode. And people who are good at pretend mode, it's really hard to detect that nothing that they're actually representing is is real. Uh, and it really doesn't come apart until you push into uh, verifying one or more aspects of what they've presented. And as soon as you do, of course, the whole thing blows up and then you realize it was... Yeah, I guess a paper tiger, not the real thing. Which is a which is a kind of loss. How do you manage that? That you were in relationship to somebody, and they uh, razzle dazzled you, and uh, you believed that what they said to you was true, uh, and none of it was. This can happen too with dismissing people with the idealization of the dismissing person is a little bit different. It's more transactional. So that's also this process of loss. Can you lose that? Can you recognize that that's what happened without losing your balance? Again, we're back to this equanimity piece in the beginning. Can you go in? Can you go in hard? Can you really connect and attach? And then when you lose it, can you go into the process of grieving that? and Come swiftly out the other end, and then eyes open, again go in and connect. And then over and over again, of course, you have the experience of that involvement, the experience of those explorations in a way that's quite rich. Whereas if you withhold yourself from that, limit yourself, protect yourself by not going all in, you lose it either way. But in the one where you go all in, you also get the richness of having gone in, even if it's a even if you do find that the uh, other person was in pretend mode the whole time and not really participating with you in that way. That's the thing about pretend mode, which is so difficult, is it's so hard to tell until you come to the moment where uh, it's tested. Is it solid? Is that when you touch it, is it actually something that's there? Or is it, or is it an illusion? 
So one of the things that makes this possible, of course, is this social network that you put in place to catch you. And then looking at that, secure functioning relationships require a lot of time, energy, and resources. And your exploration requires a lot of time, energy, and resources. And how do you balance the distribution of that so that you can go do the explorations that you need to do, take the risks that you need to take in order to find out what you need to know, and at the same time, put enough into the secure base that if you slip and fall, there's somebody there to catch you. And to know yourself well enough and to really develop skill at emotionally regulating yourself so that you can have real mastery at regulating yourself when you're out and about finding out what you need to know and at the same time recognizing that if you get so dysregulated that you can't with your great skill set regulate yourself that you can fall into the um, catch of somebody who will help you re-regulate and this is also important then push you out the door again so you can go explore more. Sometimes you'll notice that uh, if you if you pick somebody and your dysregulation dysregulates them, they have a tendency to want to inhibit your exploration so you're less dysregulated so that they don't get overwhelmed by the, the requests to regulate you. So you need to build a broad enough network of people to really catch you so using that high wire metaphor you can you can take the risks of the high wire and if you fall land in a net that catches you when i lived in new york uh, i worked as a doorman at various nightclubs and uh, one of the nightclubs i worked at was the mud club and around that time uh, philip petit I think his name is a French guy went up to the top of the old World Trade Center and he shot an arrow across to the other tower where he had a collaborator. They pulled a rope across between the, the tops of these towers, so 102 stories up. And then he got on uh, the rope that they had strung across and for 45 minutes did this amazing dance of the high wire between the two towers of the old world trade center a hundred stories up with no net uh, quite uh, astonishing and then of course you meet him at the entrance of the nightclub because he's just going out like a regular person and and there's that liveliness uh, in him I don't know that it's necessarily uh, something that's required to find out what you need to know that you have to take those those kinds of risks. I don't uh, really have a nervous system that can do that very well. I get too anxious. Small uh, bumps in the road can disrupt my ability to really function creatively. I think it's important also to really understand who you are and uh, how your conditioning affects you so that you can be strategic in 
figuring out what that social group needs to be, who, how many, what they need to be able to, to, to do for you. But we do need to have that net so that we can risk discovering things that have meaning because that's where the richness of life comes. That's where the fulfillment of life comes. Finding out what we need to know and then having this group of people that we can share it with who are interested in the, the story of us and how it's unfolding over time. And then when you find really good ones, really valuing them so you do put the time, energy, and resources into sustaining those relationships so that you have that net so that you're free then to explore. Because if you don't, what often happens is you begin to restrict the risk-taking you do so that you don't get so upset, so dysregulated. And you can, over time, eventually restrict that exploration to the point that you really don't find enough meaning. And so the, the burden of this human condition, the difficulty of living in a body and in, in our culture at this time becomes overwhelming. Then a despair at being alive sets in. A loneliness, a terrible loneliness sets in. that all making sense so you want to get really good at losing things so that you can go into things and have them because of the nature of impermanence all things are going to be lost so there's no way of avoiding that so you don't put energy in trying to avoid it you put energy into connecting and letting uh, things fall away and reconnecting when you need to All right, so why don't we do a little practice, a little uh, meditation practice on that. Um, we are in uh, morning meditation doing equanimity practice, and so I thought maybe we could do a little equanimity practice here because that's the balance. In uh, equanimity practice, we make the intention to radiate the equanimity to someone in particular. Uh, this evening we'll do an easy person. So an easy person is somebody who uh, you're connected to and the relationship is balanced. So fully engaged, lively, energetic, and at the same time balanced. Um, the phrase is long. Maybe I'll put it in the chat so you have it. Um, so things are just as they are. Things are impermanent. Joy and sorrow arise and pass away. That's talking about the impermanent nature of things. All beings are the heirs of their intentions and actions, your joy and your sorrow depend upon your intentions and actions, not upon my wishes for you. I care about you, but I cannot prevent you from suffering. So this piece is the karma piece. Your intentions and actions creates karma for you. 
And the last piece, I care about you, but I cannot prevent you from suffering, means that we do not have agency over other people's karma. They have their own karma. Nobody has agency over our karma. We have our own karma. So the balance is that our intention and action informs what happens. And in that moment that it happens, what's included is the opening of the possibility for the next action. And that spirals into a, a vicious cycle or into a beneficial cycle, a virtuous cycle, depending on that. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. I'm ringing the bell. So any comments or questions about the practice that we did? Christian. Sorry, I lost my balance there. Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of have this formulation and I don't know if I'm if it's not really equanimity, but I kind of have this formulation that at least when I practice for myself, that I'm kind of allowing information to come out of any sense gate. Like I'm kind of opening up to whatever comes up, which I guess more specifically might be like feel in space. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but not, I guess I'm not privileging anything. Does that make sense in your, the way you think about equanimity? In this particular way of practicing it? Uh, yeah. Uh, really, the main focus is always on the mind state. So that would be neck up, really, in some sense, um, out of the body. I don't know. I guess I'll kind of I'll like load up. I think of mind state as like intention sometimes. I'll kind of like be thinking about an intention that would drive about me. the word view instead. Um, view to me seems really concrete, and I can make it. It makes more sense for some of the Brahma Viharas than others. Um. I don't know. I guess I need to keep playing with it, but this view is really what we're talking about is a filter that happens in between ultimate reality and conceptual reality that distorts the way that you perceive conceptual reality. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, it could be that there is a, a an emotional aspect to it because that does tend to make it real. Um, but we're not not really focusing on the conceptual reality part of it, but on the 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 view part of it. Okay, maybe it's not what you made. It's how the mind is inclining. Right. Maybe my way isn't actually opposed to what you're saying. Because um, I think of it as a view that allows that allows things in so that I'm engaged. I'm like kind of, uh, yeah, I'm engaged with whatever comes up. I don't know. 
So then in in the Vipassana side of equanimity practice, it's the, the, that allowing. Doesn't matter what comes up, you're just allowing it without withdrawing from it, without clinging to it, without spacing out. Mm-hmm. Or practice. I thought you might say that. Someone else? So we have a few things coming up. We have a uh, meditation and addiction uh, coming up three half days in uh, May. I think I'm doing a retreat in Utrecht in June, if you want to come. Then in July, we're going to do a another level two uh, in, um, it's the first time we're offering it in the morning, so that if morning works better, that's a possibility. Uh, it's also at a good time for um, European Central Time. And then uh, we do have the whole the whole year calendared out. So uh, we'll be doing another level one and, uh, and remotely, and then another level two. But anyway, all of that stuff is on on the website. Take a look. I offer this class on a databases, which that means is I teach the class really, but then uh, if you have resources, we really do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to do it. Any amount is helpful. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice. Good to see you and we'll see you soon. Bye now.